Glory to God with great joy. Tonight we begin our Orthodox Patristic Bible study on the Gospel according to St. Matthew. And the goal of this Bible study is to gain an Orthodox Christian understanding of this Gospel account using the homilies and the commentaries of the early Church Fathers. And at the same time, we're going to use some academic tools like textual analysis um, to help us gain a thorough understanding of the text. And as we begin this journey, like with any other Bible study, we should remember to be prayerful and humble and respectful of the Word of God, because it is only through a humble spirit that we will truly understand the Holy Scripture. Tonight we're going to begin with an introduction to the Gospel according to St. Matthew. And we're going to start very broadly, uh, and then we're going to narrow things down as we progress. So first of all, I want to speak to you about the Synoptic Gospels. And if you need to know how to spell that, it is S-Y-N-O-P-T-I-C, the Synoptic Gospels. As we all know, the four Gospel accounts of the New Testament record for us the birth, the teachings, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the first three of the four Gospel accounts, those of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are known as the Synoptic Gospels because they are fairly similar to each other in terms of their structure and what they record. Indeed, the word synoptic comes from the Greek word synopsis, which is a conjunction of two words, syn, which means together, S-Y-N, together, and opsis, O-P-S-I-S, which means seeing. So when we call things synoptic, what we're saying is they look similar, they look alike. And the remaining gospel that we haven't spoken of yet, which is the gospel according to St. John, is structurally and thematically different from the synoptic gospels. So in one group you have the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they look alike, and then the gospel according to St. John is by itself, because it has a different structure and different themes from the other three. And one tradition that we have in the Orthodox Church is that after the departures of Saints Matthew, Mark, and Luke, their Gospel accounts were given to Saint John, who was the last living evangelist. And Saint John read these three accounts, and he found them to be consistent with what he experienced and then he set out to compose his gospel to fill in what was missing from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And this is why we see St. John the Evangelist as a theologian. In fact, his proper title in the church is St. John the Theologian. Um, and it's because he read the other three gospel accounts and he expanded upon them. He uh, filled in what was missing, so to speak. This is according to one tradition. And so the end result is that the Synoptic Gospels record the various teachings and miracles of our Lord in a similar manner, whereas St. John's account provides a deeper understanding of the work and teachings of our Lord. And this is why I mention uh, 
as a side note, uh, in the Coptic Orthodox Church, and also in other Orthodox churches, the reading of the Gospel according to St. John is reserved for after the Great Fast, after the Holy Pascha, after the Feast of Resurrection. So we really focus on the Gospel according to St. John during the Holy 50 days, because that is, you know, the account that is, we might say, most deep, and it helps us to understand Christ in a more intimate and, and a deeper way. And that's why the Church reserves it only after we've gone through the entire fast and the Holy Pascha and the Feast of Resurrection, and then during the Holy 50 days, we come to a more intimate understanding through that Gospel. So in terms of dating, we can say that all of the Gospels were recorded within 37 years of our Lord's ascension into the heavens. It's said that St. Matthew, who was a Jew, he wrote his account in Aramaic around the year 40 AD uh, with the goal of preaching Christ to the Jews. And it is said that later on, St. John the theologian translated Matthew's gospel from Aramaic into Greek. And we'll come back to that a little bit later. St. Mark possibly composed his account based on what he witnessed and heard from St. Peter around the year 43 AD. And St. Luke, who was a physician, who was not a Jew, he was a Gentile, he wrote his account as an historian of the church around 48 AD after he interviewed many eyewitnesses of our Lord's ministry. And that is why St. Luke's account is very detailed and cohesive. It's because as a historian, he tried to interview all of the eyewitnesses and to gather as many stories from them as possible. And finally, St. John wrote his account around 32 years after our Lord's ascension, which would place us around the year 65 AD. Now, the reason why, you know, people uh, offer these dates, you know, that Matthew was written in 40, uh, Mark is written in 43, Luke is written in 48, and John is written in 65. The reason why most people agree on these dates is because they think that no gospel was written after 70, after 70 AD. What, what big event happened in 70 AD? The destruction of the temple, right? Which is something that our Lord predicted, but none of the Gospels comment on it actually happening. Uh, and so most scholars believe it's more likely they composed the Gospels before the destruction of the temple at Jerusalem. And I want to be clear to note that although the evangelists wrote their accounts around these times, this does not mean that the church used all four Gospels immediately. In fact, when you look at church history, you will see that different churches in different areas were more reliant on one or the other Gospel for many years. So some churches really embraced Luke, for example, but they didn't use the other Gospels as much. It wasn't until much later, hundreds of years later, 
that the church pulled together these four gospel accounts and declared them as being filled with grace and truth for all Christians and for the whole church to use. And this reminds us again, as a side note, that the Holy Scriptures did not create the church, but rather the church compiled the Holy Scriptures for use in the church. Now, why do we have these four gospel accounts? Wouldn't one have been enough? As Christians, we see the four gospel accounts as being miraculous in and of themselves. Because here we have four men of different backgrounds who essentially record the same message. Four men, four different backgrounds, writing at four different times, Right? And they essentially agree and record on the same message. Remember that two of the evangelists, Matthew and John, were among our Lord's twelve apostles. So two of them were from the twelve. And the other two, Mark and Luke, are from our Lord's seventy disciples. So two are from the twelve and two are from the seventy disciples. And contrary to what many unbelievers and atheists say when they compare these four Gospels, we don't focus on any perceived differences between them. For example, we don't focus on the fact that one evangelist said our Lord received a crimson robe from the Romans, whereas another says that the robe was purple. So one says crimson, which is more of a red color. The other one says it's purple, which is more of a purple color, obviously. We don't focus on these differences and say, oh, this means the Gospels are wrong. Because obviously, if you don't have faith, then you are capable of slandering anything. But what we focus on as Christians is that all four evangelists tell us the same basic story, which is our Lord Jesus Christ was born of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Virgin Mary, that he was baptized for us, that he taught us, that he performed wonders and miracles among us, that he suffered and died for us, and that he rose from the dead. This is the essential message of the gospel. And we as Christians thank and glorify God that these four gospels agree on this essential message in a most miraculous way. So now that we've said a few words about the Gospels generally, this has been the broad part of today's lecture, let's speak about the Gospel according to St. Matthew in particular and consider some of its characteristics. The first characteristic of the Gospel according to St. Matthew is that it was written primarily for a Jewish audience. It was written to be read primarily by Jews. And the Gospel according to St. Matthew, therefore, in a sense, is a Jewish book. It's a Jewish book. And to our ears, it may sound strange to call one of the Gospel accounts a Jewish book, but in fact, this is one of the strong characteristics of Matthew. St. Matthew, as a Jew, wrote primarily with the Jewish people in mind. He had a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament and the prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. 
And for this reason, we see throughout St. Matthew's Gospel that he continually connects our Lord's actions and teachings to the prophecies of the Old Testament. St. Matthew quotes the Old Testament quite a bit because he is always connecting what our Lord is doing to a prophecy from the Old Testament. And in this way, we understand perhaps why his gospel account is the first one in the New Testament, because in a sense it's a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we see this characteristic of St. Matthew's gospel in several ways. First of all, St. Matthew consciously presents our Lord Jesus Christ as the long-awaited Messiah who has come to Israel. For this reason, we find in St. Matthew's Gospel that the different characters repeatedly refer to Christ as the Son of David. They call him in the Gospel the Son of David. For example, in Matthew 9 and Matthew 20, when the two blind men follow Christ so he could heal them, they call to him saying, Have mercy on us, Son of David. When the Canaanite woman, who was not even a Jew, pleaded with our Lord in Matthew 15 to heal her daughter, she said, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. And in Matthew 21, when our Lord entered into Jerusalem, the crowd shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. So all of these characters in St. Matthew's Gospel are calling our Lord the son of David. And we see in this that St. Matthew is presenting Christ as the fulfillment of the Messiah of the Old Testament. The promised Messiah in the Old Testament, who is the son of David, St. Matthew is telling us, this is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah for whom Israel had waited for many generations. We also know that this is what St. Matthew had in mind from the genealogy that begins in chapter 1. Does anyone remember what a genealogy is? Families? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's a list of a person's ancestors, right? It's a way of showing a person's lineage throughout the years. And we're going to spend some time later on speaking about St. Matthew's genealogy. But for now, I want to remind you that in the Gospel, in the four Gospel accounts, there are actually three genealogies of our Lord Jesus Christ. One in Matthew chapter 1, the other in Luke chapter 3, and the third in John chapter 1. And if you look at the two genealogies from Matthew and Luke side by side, you'll notice they're not the same. They're not identical. And the reason for this, among other things, is that St. Matthew traces our Lord's lineage back through the royal line of the kings of Israel, all the way back to Abraham, the father of faith. So St. Matthew starts at Abraham, and then he continues throughout the royal kings of Israel to our Lord Jesus Christ. St. Luke, on the other hand, traces our Lord's lineage all the way back to Adam, to the first man. Is this significant? Definitely it is. Why would St. Matthew focus on the royal line of David and the kings of Israel all the way back to Abraham? It's because he's writing to the Jews. He's writing to the Jews. Okay? 
And in his account, St. Matthew is very much focused on the fleshly lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ because that is what was important to the Jews. The Jews cared about this. The Jews cared about the Messiah coming from the line of David. And that's why St. Matthew is careful to present Christ as a descendant of King David. In contradistinction, we see that St. Luke goes all the way back to Adam, and St. John goes back even before the ages, right? St. John goes before the creation of time. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was gone. St. John is speaking about the divine genealogy of Christ as the only begotten Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Are Saints Matthew and, and, and John, are they saying two different things? Not at all. But rather, the one complements the other. The two go hand in hand to help us understand who Jesus is. Now, there are other things that show us in St. Matthew's account that he is speaking to a Jewish audience. For example, in Matthew, our Lord speaks about the kingdom of heaven. Basileia ton oranon. He speaks about kingdom of heaven much more than he speaks about the kingdom of God. Vasileian tu theo or ton theo, tu theo. Specifically, I counted 114 references to kingdom of heaven in St. Matthew's Gospel versus only 18 references to kingdom of God. Now, why do you suppose that St. Matthew favors kingdom of heaven over kingdom of God? Any ideas? You remember in the Old Testament, the name of God is holy. The name of God is, was considered holy. Of course, the name of God is holy. But in the Old Testament, the name of God could not just be mentioned by anyone on the street at any time. The name of God was so holy that it could only be uttered once a year by the high priest, and even then he wouldn't loudly proclaim God's name, but he would only faintly whisper it. So the name of God was uttered only once a year in the Old Testament. And even in our Lord's time, we see the Jews are reluctant to use the name of God openly as normal language. And that is why St. Matthew in his Gospel, he prefers the phrase Kingdom of Heaven 118 times or 114 times versus Kingdom of God because Kingdom of God uses the name of God. So he prefers Kingdom of Heaven and that shows that he is writing to a Jewish audience even though Kingdom of God and Kingdom of Heaven mean the same thing. But St. Matthew is focused on using kingdom of heaven because he's writing to the Jews. Moreover, in St. Matthew's gospel account, our Lord declares, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew 15, 24. If you try to find those words from Christ elsewhere in any of the other three gospels, you're not going to find it. St. Matthew is the only one to say, you know, how to have Christ say, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
In fact, in St. Matthew's Gospel, our Lord tells his apostles, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay? So in St. Matthew's Gospel, St. Matthew really emphasizes how our Lord was telling the apostles, Go first to the Jews. Go first to the house of Israel before you preach to the Gentiles. Also, another unique thing in St. Matthew's Gospel that's not found elsewhere is when our Lord affirms the law of Moses is eternally true. Our Lord says in Matthew 5:18 in the Sermon on the Mount, He says, For truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So in this way, St. Matthew is emphasizing the importance of the law of Moses, which Christ fulfilled to his, Jude to his Jewish audience. Yet another Jewish feature of St. Matthew's Gospel is found in its structure. If you look at the structure of St. Matthew's Gospel, you will see that his Gospel is organized into five separate discourses. Five great speeches of Jesus. That's the structure of St. Matthew's Gospel. Five separate discourses. Now, if this is a Jewish, if this is addressed to a Judas, Jewish audience, why do you think St. Matthew is speaking in five different discourses? Why is that significant? Same as uh, Moses has the five. Uh... Excellent. That's exactly right. The Pentateuch, or the Torah, the five books of Moses, right? You remember? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the Pentateuch, which is the Greek word, or the Torah, which is the Hebrew word. Those are the five books of Moses. But when, when our Lord Jesus Christ speaks in St. Matthew's Gospel, His words are organized into five major speeches. And that is there in the structure to hearken back to the five books of Moses. Because St. Matthew, again, is writing to the Jews. And he's presenting Christ as being greater than Moses. Right? So that's another feature of St. Matthew's Gospel. And when you look at all of these examples, all of the ones that we've, talk, we've talked about tonight, uh, the genealogy, focusing on the royal line of, of the kings of Israel, when we talk about how St. Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven more than kingdom of God because the Jews did not say the name of God easily. It was only mentioned one time a year. When you look at the unique expression of our Lord, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, or when our Lord said, not one dot shall pass from the law of Moses. When you look at you know, the, the structure organized into five discourses, it's very clear that St. Matthew is writing to the Jews. You know, and also the fact that he pulls in several Old Testament prophecies. He looks at what Christ is doing, and he brings the Old Testament prophecy to say Christ fulfilled it in this action. Right? Like when Christ was born of the Holy Virgin Mary, he brought in Isaiah 7:14, and he said it was fulfilled. Right? Out of Egypt, Hosea, I have called my son. He mentions all of these things. Right? Because he's presenting Christ as the fulfillment of 
the Messiah who is promised in the Old Testament. The second characteristic of St. Matthew's Gospel account, the first one we said is that it's a Jewish book. The second one is that it is also a Christian book. It's a Christian book. We spoke about how this Gospel was intended for a, Christ, for a Jewish audience, but we can also say it was intended for a Christian audience because one of the major themes of St. Matthew's Gospel is the Church, is the Church. The Church has existed from the beginning of time, right? Starting with the community that developed between Adam and Eve. That was, in a sense, the first Church. It's one of the earliest symbols of the Church because Adam and Eve in Paradise constituted a small community that was united with the purpose of worshiping God. That's what a Church is. So Adam and Eve, in a sense, symbolized the first church. And throughout the Old Testament, we find several symbols and types of the church as early as the book of Genesis. Uh, one of the ones that we mentioned uh, in the Bible study we did that you attended in Genesis is this beautiful uh, story of Jacob um, and Rachel. Jacob and Rachel, how Jacob is fleeing his brother and he comes to this place and there is a well and there are five or more men and they're trying to roll the stone from the well to get water but they can't and Jacob is watching this he doesn't do anything but then he sees a woman he sees Rachel coming and she's very beautiful and he falls in love with her at first sight and immediately he goes and he kisses her and this for the ancient Jews was like a symbol of engagement he went straight to her, he kissed her, and after he kissed her because she needed water, he went to the well, and that same stone that the five or more other men could not roll away by themselves, he, with his own strength, with strength from God, rolled the stone away so she could get water. Now on the surface, this is a beautiful love story, right? But it's also symbolic, because Jacob is a symbol of Christ. And Rachel is a symbol of the church. And when Jacob, Christ, goes to Rachel, the church, and kisses her, he betroths her to himself. And then he wins her over by rolling the stone away from the door of the well. Just as Christ won the church when the stone was rolled away from the door of his tomb. The, the symbolism is intentional. And the words are intentional because this is a symbol of the church. And that's one of many, many symbols in the book of Genesis that speak about the church. St. Matthew was quite familiar with the concept of the church in the Old Testament and the church as the true Israel, which includes Jews and Gentiles alike. And we see his focus on the church throughout his gospel account. For example, the Greek word for church is ekklesia which is the same word that we hear oftentimes in our Coptic hymns. This word, Ecclesia, is found only in St. Matthew's Gospel account. It's not found in the other three Gospel accounts. Also, St. Matthew is the only one of the four evangelists who mentions Christ's founding of the Church on the faith of St. Peter. Uh, if you want, if you have your Bibles with you or on your phone, we can read together the relevant passage, which is Matthew 16, 
verses 13 through 18. I'll read it just to make sure it's recorded, because we're recording this. Um, but you can please follow along and read with me Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, there's the word, church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. Now, of course, we know, as a side point, we know that our brothers and sisters in the Roman Catholic Church have interpreted this passage to mean that St. Peter himself, St. Peter himself is the rock on which the church was founded. And that, of course, they say is supported by the fact that his name, Peter, is, means rock. But Orthodox Christians don't exactly share that interpretation. We would say that St. Peter's expression of faith, what St. Peter said, his words, you are Christ, the Son of the living God, we would say this is the rock on which the church is founded because this is the church is a community of faith. And so the rock that the church is founded on is faith, faith in Christ, right? So for this reason, we don't interpret this as focusing on the person of St. Peter, but rather we see St. Peter as a symbol of the church through his perfect confession of our Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of the living God. And sadly, this passage throughout history was misinterpreted in many ways. Um, it was used to claim, for example, that the Bishop of Rome, the Pope of Rome, uh, was the head of the whole church. Um, and remember that the Orthodox Christians in the East rejected this claim, and that was one of the reasons why the church had that great split, the great schism in 1054 AD. That was one of the issues. It wasn't the main issue, but it was one of them that was going on between the church in the West and the church in the East. The Orthodox have always been willing to give St. Peter an honor among the rest of the apostles. Uh, it's hard to deny that. Right? But to say that the successor of St. Peter is Christ on earth, or that he is the head of the whole church, you know, a lot of Orthodox would say that's going too far. But anyway, that's beyond the scope of this class. The point to remember is that St. Matthew is the only one who records this confession and the founding of the church for us. And it shows again how the church figures prominently in his gospel account. There are other features in St. Matthew's Gospel that show his focus on the church. Uh, for example, only St. Matthew records the church's vital role in loosing and, and binding sins. You find that in Matthew 16, verse 18, uh, which we priests invoke every time we pray the absolution. When someone comes for confession, what are we invoking? We're invoking this authority that was handed by Christ to his apostles, which the apostles handed down to the bishops they ordained, which the bishops handed down to the priests they ordained throughout history. 
This is the concept of apostolic succession, you know, even to the present day. And so this shows Matthew's focus on the church because he's the one that speaks about how Christ will offer forgiveness of sins through the apostles in the church. Matthew 16, verse 18. St. Matthew is also the only one to speak about how Christ will be in the midst of his church. He says, even if only two or three gather, I will be in their midst, right? That's Matthew 18, 20. Um, And there are many other examples. So when you consider all of these examples, you will see that St. Matthew, although he was writing to a Jewish audience, was also writing to a Christian audience as well because he focuses a great deal on the church. And again, this might explain one of the reasons why St. Matthew's Gospel is the first one in the New Testament. It's the bridge between the Old Testament and the, yes, and the New Testament, or the Jews and the Gentiles. Okay? So St. Matthew addresses Jews using language that would be appealing to Jews and familiar to Jews, but he's also developing the concept of the church uh, in order to connect the two. (coughs) Now that we've discussed the audience of St. Matthew's Gospel, I want to move on and discuss the authorship of St. Matthew's Gospel. Why do we need to speak about authorship? It's, It's easy, right? St. Matthew wrote the Gospel and his name is on it, therefore he wrote it. End of story, right? Yes and no. Yes and no. In the early 100s, a bishop of the ancient city of Herapolis, which is modern-day Turkey, uh, his name was Papias. He wrote a work entitled The Sayings of the Lord Explained. Okay, so Papias, a bishop, wrote this work, The Sayings of the Lord Explained. Unfortunately, his work is lost. We don't have a copy of it, of the original work, but we do have parts of it quoted in Eusebius's church history. Eusebius wrote one of the great books of church history in the early church, okay? And he wrote church history about 200 years later, in the 300s, okay? And in his work, Papias said about St. Matthew's Gospel, Matthew compiled the sayings of Jesus in the Hebrew dialect, and everyone interpreted them according to the ability of each. Okay? That's what Papias says about St. Matthew's Gospel. And it's from these words that we have the tradition in the church that St. Matthew composed his Gospel in the language of the Jews at the time. He says Hebrew, but most likely it's Aramaic because that's what our Lord spoke and most likely what the the Jews spoke during that time. Um, And this tradition is confirmed by later fathers of the church. Uh, For example, Saint Irenaeus of Lyon, he wrote in the late 100s, Matthew published a written gospel for the Hebrews, the Jews, while Peter and Paul were preaching the gospel in Rome. Also, Origen of Alexandria teaches us that this gospel was published for believers of Jewish origin and was composed in Hebrew. Again, most likely Aramaic. So this then is the clear tradition of the church, right? St. Matthew wrote the gospel for the Jews in the language they understood, which would have been Aramaic at the time. That's the tradition of the church. That's what we believe. So what's the problem? What's the problem? 
The problem is some scholars say there is no way that this gospel is a translation from Aramaic because it is too beautiful in Greek. Usually if you have a document in one language and then you translate it, it's not as good. But the Greek text of St. Matthew is beautiful. And that's why some scholars believe that this could not have been translated from the Aramaic. And also because St. Matthew borrows a lot of content from St. Mark's Gospel. Now we as Orthodox Christians would simply accept the clear teaching of the Church, which is this Gospel was written by St. Matthew. That's what we believe, and I'm not saying anything otherwise, just to be clear. This is what we believe, okay? But because this is an in-depth Bible study, I want you to be aware of, you know, the other arguments, the other side, which is scholars say that the work composed by St. Matthew, which Papias referred, was not this gospel that we have, but it was a much more simple collection of the sayings of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that collection of sayings was taken by someone else, maybe St. John, maybe someone else in the early church, and they added to it, you know, from the other accounts, and they wrote it in Greek so that it's beautiful, right? That's another idea. But we as Orthodox Christians are very clear. This gospel was written by St. Matthew, and there's no reason for us to challenge that. But I want you to be aware, because you might talk to people, you know, outside, at, at work, at school, wherever. Um, so it's good at least to know what other people are saying. In the end, does it matter? In the end, it doesn't matter. Because in the end, the church received this gospel as being authentic and full of grace, full of truth. The church received this gospel and said that the Holy Spirit worked to compile this gospel. And this gospel has been handed down to us by the church from generation to generation. So in the end, it doesn't matter, right? And there are going to be a lot of issues like this, like, again, one evangelist says the robe that Christ wore was crimson, which is red, dark red, and another one says it was purple. Does that matter? Does it matter at all? What's the essential message? Christ came, he taught us, he performed miracles, he suffered, died for us, rose from the dead. That's the gospel, right? These little things, they don't really bother us as Orthodox Christians.